This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. If you are experiencing homelessness, there are a number of agencies to turn to. There are also hopes that one day we can all achieve what we just outlined as functional zero chronic homelessness. Joining us right now to talk about how things are going in London is Craig Cooper, Director of Housing and Stability Services with the City of London. Craig, thanks so much for being here. No problem, Mike. If we go over this winter, even before we get to what lies ahead, what would you look at and, and, and point to in the way that things went this year in shelters and, and other opportunities that you provided for people who are experiencing homelessness? Yeah, you know, I think like with with anything, any response, there's there's the good things that happen and the the successes to uh, to parade, and then there's some of the challenges, right? That you that you learn from, and I think um, the commitment that uh, council and and our agencies here in the city have been made to support individuals who are at risk of homelessness or experiencing homelessness has been fantastic. Over since the pandemic started, we did a first of its kind winter response um, last fall. Uh, we've done a, a lot of work with our coordinated access and, and making um, access to services and the pathway for people to get support much clearer and much easier. But, you know, we still have a lot of work to do. We're celebrating the, the good work we've done on re, uh, fun, uh, reaching functional zero for veterans homelessness. And that chronic homeless uh, functional zero is a goal that uh, the mayor and, and uh, council have set for, uh, for our community. When we talk about this past year and what the pandemic has brought for anyone at risk of homelessness or experiencing homelessness, how much more difficult was this past winter and this past year? Yeah, you know, I, I would say it's, it was extremely difficult for a number uh, of folks, especially our unsheltered populations. Um, year over year, we, you know, we have been seeing an increase in the unsheltered population for a variety of reasons. Some of it is around accessibility of, of the traditional shelters. Some of it is around restrictions, some of it around people not wanting to to access those services. And so as our numbers um, have increased a little bit over the last number of years, the pandemic really only exempl- or, um, amplified the challenges that people face with their normal day programs uh, closing because of COVID restrictions, their ability to um, find uh, a winter uh, housing opportunity, whether it's coast surfing with friends or moving into a new place or accessing uh, traditional shelters. It really um, uh, put a, um, a damper on some of the, the plans, I think, that individuals would normally make. And so that's part of why the city stepped forward with uh, the WISH program and other programs to support um, that emergency response with the uh, with the pop-up shelters. But as we see that, that demand and um, that need for that emergency response diminish, we are working towards some systemic changes to help create better spaces for people to really understand uh, the needs of our, our community and, and making sure that, you know, reflecting on the services that we have provided and, and worked with communities to provide to make sure that we're being open and transparent and um, adjusting as, as we can. Craig Cooper joining us, Director of Housing Stability Services with the City of London. So you are seeing the demand at pop-up shelters diminish? Do, do we know why that might be happening? Well, so we've, we're winding down those the, the pop-up shelter on, on York Street. Uh, we are, we're working with the Wish to Be Home program for a longer-term housing solution for those individuals who have uh, have uh, stayed there for, for since the, the um, spaces were opened. Uh, but what it's allowed us to do is understand that the service model there, 
we're working uh, quite diligently and, and through um, a request for proposal that our, our community is going to undertake in the fall, but community consultations in the next few weeks to a month to really understand um, how we can reduce the barriers in, uh, in the current traditional system and in the current system that we have. We recognize we t- we're trying to, to serve a very broad uh, type of population, people with addictions issues, individuals with mental health challenges, people that are uh, struggling with poverty, other social or traumatic issues in, the, in their life. And um, to be that catch-all for everybody does, you know, rec- rec- have to recognize that not one size fits all. And I think what uh, we're doing now as part of this review is really uh, reflecting on the system in general and, and where we've made some strides on access to the system. It's now about supporting the individuals who are accessing that to the system and making sure that we're uh, focusing on their specific needs and not trying to fit those square pegs into round holes. Craig, you mentioned ending chronic veteran homelessness. How do we kind of look around and say that has been done? How how does that happen? Yeah, so with uh, the Built for Zero program, um, when we when we've achieved functional zero, and that's the sort of the, the language we've been using, is that we recognize that we haven't ended absolute veterans' homelessness. I don't know if that's ever going to happen at this point, but uh, what the functional zero means is that we have three or less active veterans experiencing homelessness in our community at any given month. And so we've met that threshold and have met that threshold for the last seven or eight months. And so um, we can you know, say that we've achieved that uh, functional zero, but to end absolute homelessness would mean that, you know, there's no veterans experiencing homelessness on the streets. And we, we know that's not the case, but we can limit it to that three or less. And, and that is our goal. And it's what we're working towards on the, the chronic homeless as well is to try and functionally end chronic homelessness where we would have, three or less uh, individuals and families in our system that are experiencing chronic homelessness, which is that built for zero definition of an individual experiencing homelessness for more than 180 days in the last calendar year, as well as a certain number of uh, instances of homelessness over the last three years. Craig Cooper, Director of Housing Stability Services with the City of London, joining us. We mentioned Medicine Hat and the fact that they have announced that they've achieved functional zero chronic homelessness. What is it that maybe is happening in Medicine Hat that other communities are still working toward? Yeah, you know, it's the systemic change. I think Medicine Hat has been working on on this for a number of years and, and almost a decade, I think. And, uh, you know, the way that they've been able to, to transform their system and really put that focus on the prevention, diversion, and rapid rehousing of individuals over time has really allowed them to stop that sort of flow into their system and then allow them to sort of work with the individuals that are in their system long term and really then start to work to achieve that functional functional zero. I think you know there's a lot of lessons to be learned from multiple communities in um, in Canada, Medicine Hat being one of them. And and we as we're revisiting how we provide our services and how we contract services out at the city uh, for uh, homelessness pre- prevention services, we will be you know looking at the Medicine Hat model, seeing where there are some things that we can incorporate here at the city of London and making sure that. You know, we're not um, working in a bubble, that we are uh, learning from other people's lessons and, and the things that work well and uh, not creating that wheel again, that we can we can implement that locally. Have they been doing anything that other communities are not, or is it just a matter of everybody's kind of working toward a goal, but this is not a goal that happens in a day, in a month, even in a year? Yeah, I think that you just hit that nail on the head, right? <clears throat> this is something that you work on over time, and I think they, they really recognized the, the need a decade ago uh, and started working towards that and have had that consistent approach for that decade and, and been 
open and um, you know flexible on the types of supports and on the types of people that they're they're seeing that are experiencing homelessness in their community and really being um, um, uh, individual specific and trying to plan with that individual on what would it take for them not to become chronically homeless, right? It's how can we get you uh, through the challenge that has resulted in your homelessness today so that you're not uh, spending a significant amount of times in our system to, to then maybe potentially cause other challenges. And it's the, the light touch or the quick touch to get you in and out of the system as, as quickly as possible so that you can achieve your housing stability goals. Craig, is there anything that if you had a wish list right now you would ask for for London that might assist you in, in more ways than we're already seeing? Yeah, you know, patience, to be honest with you, Mike. I think that's my, my wish list is a little bit of patience. We've, we've done so many great things uh, during a pandemic and, and have so many great things to, to still do. And I, it, it doesn't happen overnight. And, uh, you know, as we talk to uh, the various community agencies and the advocacy groups locally, and we see people, um, you know, uh, talking to council and committees, it is really a function of patience and, and commitment to, to recognize that change can't happen overnight. Um, I think if there's buy-in for the direction that the city is taking uh, our system and, and supporting people, um, we are getting people with lived and living experience involved. They're going to be part of what frames our future, uh, as well as agencies and, and those that actually uh, are involved in the system and, and involved in providing those supports. I think patience is the biggest wish I would have because it is a, a big job. It is a challenging job, and my staff uh, and my team, I should say, uh, at the City of London do do yeoman's work. They're they're working as hard as we can to try and support individuals that we know are in life and death situations. And um, every time we hear of a death in a community, it absolutely rocks our team. And um, as we look to uh, change the system, we, we, we know it takes a little bit of time and, and that we will get there. Director of Housing Stability Services with the City of London, Craig Cooper, joining us. Craig, as a final note, do we know how close we would be to what has been defined by, you mentioned, Built for Zero Canada as the, the definition of functional zero chronic homelessness? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're a bit away. We're not quite as close as Medicine Hat uh, ever was. Uh, we're still at about just over 300 individuals that um, are experiencing chronic homelessness. Now that fluctuates from month to month as we look in inflow and people that have housed and uh, people that have become inactive on our system, but also new people who start to experience chronic homeless. So what we've done recently is we've really changed uh, our diversion processes at the front door of of our system. We're working with our shelters to, to divert better. Uh, we're working with the, you know uh, agencies that refer people to shelters to divert better. And then our, some of our prevention work. So if we can start to slow that um, flow into the system, then we can stop people from experiencing homelessness and they don't start counting. And then as we start to support those folks who are existingly chronically homeless, uh, we can you know provide those better uh, supports to them, make sure that there's housing available to them, you know, the, the mayor and council are supporting that direction on 3,000 units in five years. That's going to be very significant to get those units built at an affordable, uh, an affordability level that really is supporting uh, what we're seeing coming through our, our front counters and, uh, and through over the phone and then people contacting the city saying, hey, I need some help. And so for us, it, it is a, it's a, uh, all these things having to come together, but the, the framework's in place and, and I think we're, we're getting the resources in place and it will just be, again, over time, we'll start to see a real significant drop in, in those numbers so that, you know, within a certain number of years, we'll be able to, uh, to achieve that functional zero for chronic homelessness. Craig, thanks so much for the update. We really appreciate the work that you do and the time today. Anytime, Mike. Thank you. That's Craig Cooper, Director of Housing Stability Services, City of London.
So we sit at, as Craig says, about 300, and again, that number does fluctuate, and one of the big things is that goal of building those housing units and having those in place, and that is something that Medicine Hat did have, and as Craig says, it's not that they got a head start on it. Communities, municipalities have been dealing with homelessness and and trying to end chronic homelessness for a long time but it's it's just what has happened there where they were able to get housing units and they have been able to basically you know work with all of the individuals who were experiencing homelessness or who were at risk of experiencing homelessness and they are certainly leading the way right now in terms of of fitting that definition that was created but in london it sounds like we do have a great deal of work being done and a great deal of reason to be hopeful we always try and stay up to date on what is happening provincially and we have an opportunity right now to speak with sabrina nanji from Queen's Park Observer, and it is always a great conversation. Sabrina, how are you? Busy day, uh, somewhat at Queen's Park. Got a lot of excitement to chat about things, Mike. Well, let's begin with what happened at the Premier's house. Was it last night where someone shows up yelling and, and they have a butcher knife? Yeah, it was a pretty scary story that we're hearing. Um, I've got it confirmed from the Premier's office that uh, there was a man outside his home in Etobicoke who was wielding a butcher knife. Um, there are some reports that there was blood uh, on the knife. Um, still waiting to get the details on that. But uh, apparently this person was slashing tires before and then yelling outside the premier's house. Um, everyone is safe. And the, the OPP managed to, uh, you know, get the guy right away. The premier has his normal security detail um, at all times. So they were able to, to get this guy. Um, the police have arrested a 44-year-old man we're just hearing now. Um, but this is something that I, I think, you know, we, we have seen, uh, you know, not to this level, but, but the premier has not been a stranger to protesters showing up at his house uh, throughout the pandemic, even before that. Um, and he's sort of said, you know, uh, to the protesters anyway, uh, that I guess tend to be more peaceful, that, that they uh, shouldn't be there disrupting, you know, his neighbors and, and to come down and protest at Queen's Park. So we don't know all the details of this man and, you know, what his story is, but uh, everyone is, is safe for now. Well, that at least is a positive in all of this. Boy, you want to be premier? That comes along with it sometimes. Let's talk about the earlier reopening idea. People are very focused on case counts right now, and we had heard the medical officer of health, Dr. David Williams, say, hey, if we get under a 1,000, well, we're under a 1,000, have been for a few days now. In fact, yesterday, very low. Not sure how long case counts are going to matter in all of this, but how about the maybe the whispers that are out there, Sabrina, for an earlier reopening. Could things really be moved up or do they seem to be sticking in the lanes that they were originally put in? 
Well, certainly the calls are getting louder, and we have heard, you know, pushback from Williams, who's actually on his way out the door. It's his last day uh, as our chief medical officer of health on Friday, um, and, and he sort of poured cold water on this notion of, of us being able to enter step two early, uh, earlier than July 2nd, which is the expected date now. Uh, you're right, you know, case counts are coming down, hospitalizations are, you know, uh, Hospitals are still packed, but, you know, not as not as bad as it was uh, at the height of the third wave. And I do think the Ford government has learned its lessons from the third wave where they reopened a little too quickly there and had to had to bring things back down. Uh, I don't think anyone wants to see that happen again. So I think they are being a little bit more cautious. But Williams was willing to budge ever so slightly and said that uh, things like hair salons and barbershops might be able to open a couple of days earlier. Um, I personally really need a haircut. I know that, uh, you know, small businesses are are uh, demanding that these that they've been shut down, especially in the GTA for, for months, you know, at a time, some of the longest lockdowns. Um, throughout the province and, and even the country. So I think, you know, there's a there's a lot of hope for it. I think it would go a long way. Uh, we asked the Solicitor General this morning, actually. She did not um, give us any hint, you know, either way, just sort of said, stay tuned. So we're hoping <laughs> we're hoping for some clarity, uh, at least maybe on Thursday, the next time when the docs are back at the podium. So on Thursday, Sabrina Nagy joining us from Queen's Park Observer. The other thing that certainly is still there in the background that gets talked about a lot is schools and a safe back-to-school plan. It almost feels like a rerun of last summer. Sabrina, right around now is when we started thinking, okay, but what about September? Do you feel this being very similar now in 2021? I mean, it definitely feels like deja vu, and especially because we have the same education minister, Stephen Lecce, sticking around, uh, you know, despite the cabinet shuffle last week. We, we did hear rumors that he wanted a new portfolio, uh, that, that he could potentially even run federally. You know, none of this is confirmed. It's all just the buzz around Queen's Park. But uh, Stephen Lecce will be sticking around and he'll be the one presenting the plan that uh, folks are, you know, increasingly becoming more eager for. Uh, Lecce says that Details will be coming in July, but up until then, we have, you know, health experts, parents, everyone weighing in on on what the back-to-school plan should look like. As vaccinations for youth are ramping up as well, you know, there are still calls for better ventilation, smaller class sizes. We're even hearing opposition parties, you know, make those promises for beyond the pandemic, for after the, the next election next year. Um, I think that relying on vaccinations and not making any, you know, structural changes for September that might end up backfiring. So I think that there's lots of chatter now about what this back to school plan could look like. Hmm. Well, it will be a big one to follow in the next little while. Sabrina, on Friday, and it's interesting that it's done on Friday, we saw a couple of changes to the cabinet with the provincial government and with Ontario Premier Doug Ford. How much noise has come out of that? It, it seems they were announced, and now they're, they're, just, they're just there. There hasn't been a, a big reaction to this. Is it bigger at Queen's Park? I mean, we're definitely trying to get some of the gossip, but, you know, not being at the legislature, the House isn't sitting right now. It's it's summer for us. Uh, you know, it, it has been a little quiet. Uh, I think 
announcing a cabinet shuffle on a Friday afternoon uh, might have might have you know played into that a little bit. But I think now we're starting to hear a little more from the ministers that were demoted. I'm uh, I, I know that Lori Scott has you know come out and publicly said. Uh, she sort of shrugged it off, you know, the former Minister of Infrastructure, cabinet shuffles come and go. Um, Ernie Hardiman, you know, the former Agriculture Minister, uh, you know, he's not, he, he said he's not, you know, super happy about it, but understands, you know, this is just the way uh, the chips fall. But someone I'm excited to hear from and haven't heard from publicly yet anyway is Jeff Urich from, you know, Elgin Middlesex London, who was taken out of cabinet as Environment Minister. And I thought that one was very surprising, you know, for, for us Queen's Park watchers, because Yurik is someone who's very capable as a cabinet minister. Um, he has a great reputation. The, uh, I guess the so-called excuse is that he was one of the anti-lockdown uh, cabinet ministers behind the scenes. Um, but I do think that, you know, the, the, the word from some PCs that I'm hearing from is that that was maybe just an excuse that, you know, Yurik is from uh, a place where COVID did not hit as hard as some other areas in the GTA and that people are really disappointed to see him out. But again, you know, he comes from a very uh, Tory friendly riding. So I don't know if that will hurt them very much in the next election. It'll be up to voters at the end of the day. Sabrina Nanju joining us from Queen's Park Observer, and we will wait to see whether we do hear from Jeff Urich at some point. The other one that came out of that was the return of Rod Phillips, who was finance minister and then seemed to have his social media team take care of, hey, let's make it look like Rod Phillips is at home over the holidays when in actuality he was on a vacation violating an awful lot of pandemic rules. Now he comes back as the Minister of Long-Term Care. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, a lot of conservatives are actually happy and relieved that that Phillips is back at the cabinet table. Um, and, you know, perhaps the the roughest parts uh, on, on the long-term care file are behind us, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, at least pandemic speaking, but this, a lot of the recovery and lessons learned from the pandemic and long-term care is going to be up to Phillips to put out there. Um, I, I do think that it's interesting that he is uh, headlining a fundraiser actually with the premier on zoom up to 1600 bucks. If you want a ticket uh, to, to rub virtual shoulders with the, the former, uh, or I guess current long-term care minister and the premier um, on Thursday. The, so I, I think that, that that also shows that they really want to put Phillips out front and center. Um, this is really all about re-election at this point is, is what it seems like beyond governing because, you know, there's not much time to the next vote that ministers usually need months to, you know, catch up on their files and, and come up with some groundbreaking policies. I don't know if we'll have much of a chance for that, but certainly they think that Rod Phillips um, is has been forgiven enough, you know, at least from the government side, that, that he's welcomed back with open arms. I think it'll be up to voters, especially in Ajax, to decide if, you know, he's forgiven for vacationing in St. Bart's. Yeah, $1,600 and you don't even get rubber chicken? <laughs> no, you get an online Zoom face-to-face with the Premier and, and Rod Phillips. So I don't, I don't know if it's worth it. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, the supporters will always pay whatever it is just to contribute to the party, but at least rubber chicken in the mail, something like that. Sabrina, thank you so much for updating this. It's always a pleasure. Keep safe. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon, Mike. 
That is Sabrina Nanji from Queens Park Observer. $1,600, and I understand what it is. And, you know, if you are someone who contributes to a party, you're going to contribute to a party. This is the opportunity to rub online virtual shoulders with the Premier and Rod Phillips. Really? Could we throw in some sort of act? Could someone who juggles swords be there? I think this is a juggling chainsaws. If I wanted to do that, you'd you'd have to get a chainsaw juggler in for sure. Really? This is and you know people are going to sign up for this. <sighs> do we need the notwithstanding clause for this one? Let's talk about something that we are going to see play out in the next little while. It is something called Surviving Memory. And it is a project that has been put together and is one of five Western Partnership and Partnership Development Research Grant recipients. And we are lucky enough to have with us right now Western Professor Amanda Jibb. Professor Jibb, thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much. Happy to be here with you. We don't necessarily know a lot about El Salvador. And unless you're somebody who may have family there or friends there or for some reason you have been able to see what's been going on, we are completely oblivious as we walk our sidewalks and our paths in our day-to-day life. Can we talk about what has happened in El Salvador that really makes this a focal point of a project? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, first of all, I would mention that we have um, many um, uh, Salvadorian Canadians um, here in our country. Um, A lot of them came to the country as refugees in the 1980s and early 1990s. Um, And uh, they were uh, refugees fleeing a civil war that raged in the country from 1980 until 1992. And so Surviving Memory in Post-War El Salvador is a collaborative international um, research partnership that consists of massacre survivors, former refugees, scholars, artists, architects, lawyers, engineers, mental health professionals, but also um, Salvadorian municipalities and museums and civil society organizations. And we all have one common goal, which is documenting um, the Salvadorian Civil War Uh, to prevent future violence and also um, to promote international education about that history and intergenerational education within El Salvador. So when we look at at kind of the history and and what will be focused on in this project, what are you looking at? Well, we've been uh, actually active in El Salvador for the last five years um, with two pilot projects there focused on um, the recovery of memory of the Civil War in war-affected communities in two departments or provinces called Chalatenango and Cuscatlan. Um, the new funding that we just received from the Social Sciences and Humanities um, Research Council of Canada, it's an additional $2.5 million, so a lot of funding, and this is going to allow us to, to really expand the, the scope and scale of the project. And we've been focused a lot on uh, memory workshops, so sitting in circles with, with groups of survivors and also people from the younger generations to share stories uh, video testimonies. We've been engaged in a process of mapping massacre sites. Um, in, in the Department of Child Tenango alone, there were more than 60 community-identified massacres that were perpetrated by the government army during the war. 
And a lot of these um, sites are at risk of being lost. So we work with survivors to get GPS coordinates, to record testimonies. Um, but we're also really engaged in educational projects. So we're creating uh, community books, documentary films. Um, we're engaged in architectural design of memorials at some of those sites that I mentioned, a lot of public art projects. Um, and eventually, um, we will be working with two uh, small rural communities to create local museums as well. You mentioned museums and memorials. Why do you see these as being so important? Well, in 1993, there was um, a United Nations um, Commission on the Truth for El Salvador, and they um, received 22,000 complaints of serious acts of violence that were committed um, during that um, 12 years of the Civil War. And they attributed 85% of those um, war crimes to the U.S.-backed Salvadorian government army. So this was a, a government that was perpetrating atrocities against its own people, um, massacres of, of civilians, um, forced displacement of many civilians um, in various parts of the country, um, you know, various forms of, of, of oppression. And um, uh, so um, one of the recommendations in that Truth Commission is around the importance of commemoration. And this is certainly something I've seen in my other work um, in Nazi-occupied Europe and also in Rwanda, where I've worked with survivors um, of those two uh, genocides. So, so the act of commemoration um, is extremely important, both for the memory of the event and, and the truth of that history, but it becomes a kind of restorative justice uh, for the people living there, and I think is is a really important step towards reconciliation in the country. Dr. Amanda Jib joining us from Western University as we look at an El Salvador research project that has received a major grant. And you mentioned governments and atrocities toward their own citizens. This is something that we do see, and you mentioned some of the other places that, that we have seen it. Where does this start? Why does it happen? Oh, that's a really big question. I think to answer that one, you may have to take my course on comparative genocide. <laughs> um, but I, I guess I would say, you know, I, I don't think there's there's one um, uh, single answer. Um, but I would say that it's not uncommon that, that states um, frequently, uh, uh, if they are totalitarian in nature, um, and in, even in cases where they're not, right? Uh, we've seen certainly here in Canada, colonial states, uh, colonial state committing um, genocide against indigenous um, peoples um, here, you know, in our own territories. Uh, so this is this is something that is is common. Um, and there, there are lots of theories about why states perpetrate this kind of violence. Sometimes it's ideological, um, you know, motivated by by hate or fear around difference. Um, sometimes it is um, to put down a, a counterinsurgency movement. Um, sometimes it's about acquisition of land or resources. So, um, so it's it's difficult to answer that why question. Um, but it's important that we continue to ask it and that we uh, that we understand our history here in Canada, um, but also uh, the, the the way that these atrocities are committed over and over again around the world. And the fact that they are committed over and over again around the world, this is, this is again, something that we have an opportunity to, to take a look at and, and to help with. Where does that help come from? Where should we be centering that? 
I think from my perspective, it, it, it's as a university professor, it is um, really about education. So one of the goals with surviving memory in post El Salvador is the prevention of future violence. So not just commemoration, but how, um, you know, all of these um, uh, artistic interventions and documentation work that we're doing around the massacres can be communicated to the next generations. And so I think that that educational piece and the, the role of commemoration um, the role of survivor testimony is extremely important. And it's it's very easy to turn a blind eye to these acts of violence around the world. And so I think, we, you know, we need to be informed. Um, we need to be active. We need to be engaged with our government representatives um, uh, in, in terms of, um, uh, you know, calling for negotiated solutions to some of these conflicts and intervening in cases where that's necessary. So, um yeah, I think I think it starts with education and knowledge. We are talking right now with Dr. Amanda Jibb from Western University, and we're looking at a research grant that will help a research project in looking at El Salvador and the Salvadorian Civil War and trying to prevent future violence through, in a way, commemoration. What sorts of things, to, to say that you're going to create a, a museum, what sorts of things do you find important to put into something like that so that people can learn what happened? Well, our methodology as a team, you know, we're, we're working hand in hand and in solidarity with survivors and civil society organizations on the ground in El Salvador. So our methodology is very collaborative and community based. So all of the projects that we've engaged in in the past and all the, the projects that we proposed um, in this um, in this new grant uh, are, are really developed from the community base from the bottom up. So that, those museum projects, um, we, we've done a number of consultation sessions with communities and with survivor groups. And it will be important, I think, um, to create a repository um, of materials, um, to digitize um, materials that are sitting in, currently sitting in boxes um, in a really humid climate. Um, so I think that will be the first stage. Uh, so creating a digital archive that's accessible to the public, to students in El Salvador, um, to create an exhibition and artistic installations um, in the two spaces in which we'll be working. But also, um, you know, one of the things that the survivors and community members have said is that they really want a dynamic space. So, you know, not just a museum where you walk in and, and kind of engage passively with um, uh, images or text uh, in an exhibition on a wall, but a space where there can be lots of workshop groups, lots of um, knowledge sharing between generations. Um, one of the museums would like to install a kitchen so they can do cooking classes. So we're looking at, you know, recovery of all kinds of knowledge that was disrupted during the war around medicines and foods and materials. Um, so we see we envision museums as, as really dynamic spaces. And um, I think in seven or eight years time, we'll, we'll have a better sense of, of what they look like. But um, certainly that's the vision. When you're talking with people and they're having to deal with their own memories, what is that part of this process like? It, it um, can be really... Well, we may have lost Dr. Jib. Uh, we'll attempt to get Dr. Jib back because I, I would like to know, because you're, you're again, we're, we're talking about a grant that's going to allow for a project that will take elements of what has happened in the Salvadorian Civil War and through 
commemoration and through recognition, they hope that this kind of helps for that reconciliation. It's that same old line, those who do not pay attention to history are doomed to repeat it. And to be able to look and say, okay, this this is what went on. This is why it's been so important in other memory projects. The memory project that's been put together by the Dominion Institute and what it has done for those who have served in wars in Canada and those memories and how powerful it is to have someone share the memory who was there. And it might be an incredibly difficult memory to deal with, but it's so important because they are able to say, no, I didn't get this from a book. I didn't get this secondhand. I didn't think this up on my own. This is not what I believe happened. I was there. This is what happened. Dr. Jib, what is it like to speak with people who have those memories and are willing to share them? Uh, it's tremendously moving. I, I recall um, it, on one occasion, uh, we were, our, t- our small team, uh, just four of us, were, were working with two survivors um, to to uh, map um, a massacre site um, from a massacre called Los Raudas. Um, the Los Raudas massacre was um, committed on November 1st, 1982. And we made four attempts with those survivors, hiking through the mountains and the forests um, to, to try to, to find the site where um, the mass grave um, is still located. And, you know, we spent days wandering around. We, we, we got very, very close. Um, this was in August 2018. And then finally, in February 2019, we went back again. We were able to um, find a witness who had been 10 years old at the time of the massacre. And uh, he had been up in the hills and had witnessed it with his father and was there in the aftermath. He was able to take us right to the spot. And it was in a very dense, um, overgrown area. Uh, but being there with the survivors in that moment, when after 37 years, we were able to find the mass grave uh, where, where um, more than 10 people are buried, was a tremendously moving moment. And, um, you know, we were able to film testimonies of the survivors at that place, but also accompany them through the process um, to exhume um, the, the bodies of their relatives um, so they could um, be properly buried in a cemetery. So it's it's um, it, it's really moving and gratifying to be a part of that process. Well, thank you for sharing what you have with us today, and good luck with everything else that is still to come with this project. Like you say, a lot of those those digital files they're not exactly in ideal spots, are they? It, it's time to to get those into safer spots, and we never know where you can put digital files these days. Yeah, well, they're not even digitized yet. So we're talking about boxes of photographs and documents. Oh, so wow. The first, yeah, the first step is getting those boxes, you know, out of out of closets, um, old videotapes, for example, um, and um, working with an archivist at Western Libraries named Amanda Oliver to uh, work through a process of digitizing all that material. And then, yes, we will find a safe place for the digital files. But first, <laughs> we need to digitize them. <laughs> thanks so much, Dr. Jib, for what you're doing. And thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. That is Dr. Amanda Jib from Western University, where it's important to look and say, okay, here's, here's what's happened. Here's a civil war situation. Here is something that has atrocities we can't even think of. How do we honor the individuals, and how do we make sure that people understand what happened here, why it was wrong, and why you can't 
have it happen again. And that's never going to put an end to dictatorships and totalitarian governments and anything of that sort. But at the same time, it gives you the opportunity to have some real accounts of what happened. And that's where the project is headed. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 